Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, so welcome to the latest episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. And this week I'm joined by Martin Clausen, who is founder and CEO of Syngrato. And today we're going to delve into the topic of computational contracts. And Syngrato are working on a product called Hypercontracts, which sounds exceptionally interesting. So, Martin, welcome to the uh, podcast. Good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's good to good to finally get you on. I know we've been talking about it for a little while, and uh, it's a it's a subject that is actually fascinating. So, um, I think it's going to be a really good discussion. Yeah, we we think so, of course, uh, and it it might be sort of at the very bleeding edge of uh, legal tech, uh, but uh, we we think the the time has come to uh, to take it seriously and try to see if we can't do anything practical with it. Yeah, well, we kind of, we kind of need more of that rather than this, <laughs> the same old legal tech. Uh, um, stuff that we hear week in week out i think it's it's good to have something new to talk about for a change so uh no it's, it'll be uh, very interesting um but i know you've i've know you've listened to the podcast before so i know you know that i always ask a, an icebreaker question um mm-hmm. and i've actually mixed it up recently so you've got two to choose from you could either tell me uh what your favorite video game is and favorite console was etc um or if you'd prefer, you could actually tell me what your favorite '80s movie is. We've got two options now, so take your pick. Mm, uh, that's it's it's a tough one, but I think I'll actually pick a video game from the '80s. I'm just dating myself right out of the gate here. <laughs> okay. Um, I would I would mention a, a an obscure Commodore Amiga game called Rotor. Okay. Just because it's uh, it was something that I played, and I actually knew the guys who made the game. It was one of the the not so many Amiga games that were that were made in in Denmark back in the day in '89, if mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very interesting experience to to see these guys put this game together and see it published, and and so we of course got to play test it before it it got out there and so on. So awesome. If if you like a really really retro style amiga game and 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 a very hard one at that uh look try to see if you can't find a rotor yeah that's awesome i love how you've you've combined the 80s theme now with (laughs) with the video game theme and maybe that's the question favorite 80s video games now going forward you'll you'll exclude quite a few people true you ask that question true true yeah okay all right, let's. Um, why don't we get into it then? So, obviously, I mentioned that you'd founder and CTO uh, Singrato, but I think the the thing we're here to talk about really is is hypercontracts and and the kind of new product you're working on. But um, mm-hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit about hypercontracts, um, what it is, uh, how it works, the problem that it solves in the market? Mm. So, um, hypercontract is hypercontracts is what we call a computational contract platform. Mm. Um, and um, for that to make any sense, we probably need to talk about what a computational contract is. And a, a computational contract, has, it has many definitions, but I like uh, one that sort of goes like this, like it's a, it's a contract that is expressed in a form that both humans and software slash computers can make sense of. Mm. So it's both human and computer readable. Uh, with all the benefits and features that you can produce if you have a, a contract that uh, that has those features. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess you know when you think about it, um, contracts have been human readable for, for since since year dot. But some some will claim not, of course. But <laughs> well, yeah, actually, it's a good point. Depends who you ask. Um, yeah, lawyers might might think they're readable, but the uh, the actual parties to them probably think they're indecipherable. But mm. I guess you've seen the kind of the rise of tools recently in recent years that try and try and read contracts you know systems that try and read contracts and interpret them so i guess you know computational contracts sound like you're starting from a position where you want to make them readable by machines initially without having to to analyze them break them down do any sort of clause extraction or analysis they are just you're building them in a way that makes them interpretable and understandable by machines from from the start is that right that's right, and and uh, it's it's there's many reasons for that. Both um, the limitations in the state of the art and the the, the, the foreseeable state of the art, with uh, in terms of taking 
traditional contracts uh, uh, and analyzing them using machine learning or similar approaches, uh, the, the limitations in that, uh, combined with the fact that it's it 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 can only ever provide an after-the-fact understanding and of a contract and. You know, it's 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 quite obvious that that the point in time where you really want to understand your contract is not after you've signed it, right? It's it's prior, and you want to be able to use that understanding to shape the contract so it best fits the needs of the the parties. And you only really get that with with uh, with a computational contract uh, because. You, Right from the get-go, when you start thinking about what the contract should contain, you get the benefits of having a software computer assist you in the understanding and probing mm. the contract. Mm. But if we, if we take a step back then, so for anyone looking at a computational contract versus kind of a regular uh, mm. contract, I mean, what would they notice different? What would be the what would be the kind of the thing that they would notice? What would be the differences be? And and how do you Versus how you normally draft a contract, how do you go about creating or drafting or preparing a computational contract? Well, it it is a it is a piece of programming, but it's not like taking a regular computer programming language and starting to write a a program. It is a, it is built using a programming language that was designed from the get-go for expressing contracts. So mm. instead of having very generic uh, mechanisms in the language, it has mechanisms that would be familiar to a lawyer, like notices, like uh, obligations, like discretions, like uh, conditions. Uh, it would have definitions, uh, all that type of uh, thing. So the entities in the language would make sense to a lawyer or any contract person. Mm. Um, uh, so 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 it would look like perhaps like a computer program, but it would it would contain a lot of mechanisms that would be instantly recognizable for anybody familiar with contracts. Mm. And I mean, uh, so then I guess my question would be, who drafts computational contracts, or at least I mean, what's your view on how this is going to evolve? Because at the moment, lawyers sit down with their template document or uh, something they've used before, and they'll prepare their contracts and they'll just use you know essentially legalese or plain english in some cases um to try and express express their you know, the clauses mm. and the contents of that contract what would they do with a computational contract can lawyers draft them or well it, it i think computational contracts can come into being in a, a variety of ways um it could be that uh, we are just instantiating or the user whomever it might be a commercial person a lawyer whatever is just instantiating a contract from a pre-prepared computational contract that a service provider like us or somebody else had had drafted and just fill in the blanks so to speak and it could be an immensely complicated contract that could be instantiated uh, by just a few pages of, of choices uh, so for instance if you had like a framework agreement for uh, for SaaS applications, for, for uh, software as a service application, and, and you had access to user framework agreement, you might just decide, well, I'm going to be paying this, I'm picking these service levels, I'm going to fill out a few other practicalities like the identity of the parties and so on, and then you just push go, so to speak, and you instantiate a mm -hmm. And an, an instance of an uh, of an existing agreement in the system that was drafted by mm. professionals. You could also, if you're familiar with document assembly yeah. systems that uh, that usually generate a PDF or Word document afterwards, you could have that uh, like a document assembly program output a computational contract instead. There's nothing preventing it from from doing uh, so. You could also have bespoke contracts. Uh, you could have a contract engineer in your company if you are if you're doing computational contracts at volume, or you could hire that as a service if you wanted. Where you say, well, we are we are contemplating this one-off type of a contract, but it's highly critical. It's uh, very risky, and it's of. of huge financial significance mm. for the company so we will we will we will invest uh, that little bit of extra effort in having a computational model of our contract from the get-go to understand it better and to make sure that we cover everything that we that yeah. we want to cover i mean that's so it. there's a there's different ways of these things coming into the world uh, finally i would say that uh, we have as part of our roadmap also a a graphical 
slash sort of block-based editor uh, uh, on the roadmap that, that, that we feel will be suitable for uh, end users, for lawyers, mm. uh, with a little bit of training. Uh, it's actually built around a toolkit that uh, Google uses for, for these types of things. So it's a very battle-hardened uh, framework for making sort of programming like this in a domain accessible to um, to end users yeah well it's, it's kind of almost leveraging that whole kind of no code trend isn't it that you know you could use tools to actually create powerful applications or in this yes. case contracts but in a very intuitive way that doesn't require you to have to know the underlying language and you know i've always said it's it's odd isn't it that you get technology like document assembly and it's a it's a new way of creating an old output it's it's, mm. a, it's a new way of creating the same old contract, paper, yes. word. But mm. I guess, like you say, you know, you could take it to the next level now and, and leverage that doc, document assembly. But you, what you're doing is you're not assembling a Microsoft Word document. You're um, assembling a computational contract. Um, and so you don't even need to know the underlying coding, et cetera. It's, it's just created from the inputs that you, you provide. Exactly. So, I mean, take it a step back even further then. Because all this, this is this is fascinating, and and I think a lot of people listening would be saying this is long overdue. Why have we been doing it in this cra- crazy old way of drafting in Microsoft Word? But um, where where did the idea come from? What's kind of what's your background? Who are you working with over at um, Singrato on hypercontracts? You know, what's the what's the background to all this? What's it? Where did it start? Well, I'm a I'm a, 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 a lawyer by training, and I've been an in-house counsel for. Uh, my entire career in t- until I sort of uh, threw myself into this uh, this uh, crazy mm. uh, venture. Uh, I've worked in uh, in uh, logistics and shipping and in in renewables primarily, and I've uh, been a general counsel uh, at both in both uh, industries uh, for for major sort of international companies in those industries. And uh, but my my I got my start in in IT actually in in uh, in an uh, in an IT comp- fairly large IT company, uh, I guess also due to my sort of technical interest in 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 in, in IT and software in in general, um, and it it's quite evident that um, the way contract management is supported. Uh, in general, especially for the large, complex agreements that run for a long time, have changes, have complicated reporting mechanisms, uh, have complicated um, service levels, have complicated pricing and discount structures, and so on. The support that you get from software for 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 managing these contracts and do the correct thing in your organization according to these contracts is is abysmal, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, most contract management systems will will let you find your contract in a database in PDF form or whatever it it uh, form it has, maybe a Word document, which you aren't entirely sure was the final one, right? Was this the signed one? And it might have, if it's state of the art, some kind of obligation tracking where somebody has manually extracted some obligations Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. listed them and put some deadlines against them and maybe assigned them some some people to check and and so on and maybe a few other things but that's about it and that's actually very poor support that you're getting and you know the idea came from that observation and the fact that i've been programming since i was 11 years old um, and noticing the similarities between programs between Mm -hmm. code and code basically, right? Uh, the code of a contract and the code of a program. But then also reading a lot of the, because that's obvious, there's quite a few people have noticed that and there's quite a lot of literature in the in, in the academic world on this. But most of the attempts throughout time trying to, to do this, trying to model the law or contracts in code have been focused on a particular paradigm within programming called logic programming. Mm. Um, and if they've been very sort of total in their approach, it, it's been kind of all or nothing. If you can't model every aspect of a contract or every aspect of the law, and, and ideally both because obviously contracts are subject to the law, then then it's not really worth our time. It, it's been... I don't want to diss the academics on this because they've they've been doing very important work. Yeah. Uh, but but they've also quite spectacularly failed to make it practical. And so our idea has from the beginning been 
we'll do we'll do enough modeling that we can create value and and that's that's the target that's the goal we'll only model stuff that creates value for the users so like we are really going to be modeling in our system a force majeure clause for instance yeah. because by its very nature it comes into play very rarely and there's probably not much you can add by by modeling it in code but we will model your service levels that you use every day that determines whether liquidated damages have to be paid or whatnot we'll model those and we'll feed data into the model that lets the contract automatically determine uh, various interesting aspects of its its the, its state of itself so to speak namely has it been breached are liquidated damages due and so on yeah so so we are taking a very sort of practical, you could say, hybrid approach to things. We accept that there are certain things that in prose that we will never model uh, or very rarely do, uh, and we'll 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 build enough of a model that we can create value for the users, but nothing more than that. Mm. And that approach makes it practical. It's actually achievable with the right language and the right technology. We can actually make something that has practical value. Yeah, no, I can I can see that, and you're absolutely right about the contract management platforms and the way, even where they are leveraging things like clause extraction or term extraction. Mm. Like you say, you're just building up a database of clauses or terms, and th- those in isolation tell you nothing essentially, because so many provisions in a contract are interrelated. Um, you know, you can't necessarily always interpret one provision without knowing what the situation is with another provision or even knowing external facts about what exactly. the current state of the you know the relationship or the or payment terms etc are you can't then interpret what the contract means and so i can absolutely see the, the value in this by making this computational and having systems interpret it to give you actually correct insight and analysis and guidance and useful information out of those contracts at any point in time Rather, mm-hmm. rather than you, you as a user just having to go and review some of those static data points and, and try and reach your own conclusions, this actually kind of guides you because it's it's interpreting the information it's got and it, and it can it can intake the information to kind of get to the right outcomes. Yeah, and it knows that if the, your breach clause says that that uh, it is uh, it is you abide, you may you may terminate with immediate effect if this is a the second breach within a calendar year, for instance, right? If we if we know what has happened in the past because we've tapped into the right line of business systems and and registered all relevant events in the system, we can actually determine whether or not you are in one state or the other and what what what, what you can do. Whereas, as you say, you know, static analysis of a a, a contract using machine learning and to to show you the the uh, the um, the termination clause or whatever, it, it will not provide you any type of understanding. It helps you, you know, orientate yourself in the contract and that's fine. And it's, it's probably all you can do for, 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 for uh, due diligence purposes, which is the, the arena that this kind of software is mostly used in. Mm. Um, but it, it won't help you in your day-to-day work in figuring out what is the right thing to do. What are my options in terms of this contract, right? Yeah. It won't do much for you there. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question now, and I know we, we touched on it when we've spoken previously, and it's a, an area that I think <laughs> kind of frustrates you. But um, <laughs> I guess a lot of people will be listening and saying, okay, computational contracts. So what's the difference with um, smart contracts then? And, you know, the, we, hear, we hear a lot about smart contracts. Yeah. I think a lot of the time when people hear smart contracts, what they're actually thinking of is, is um, or what they're hoping for is computational contracts. But, but why don't you give me your perspective? Because I know they're, they're two di- different things. They, they are indeed um, uh, smart contracts are tied to, to, to different kinds of blockchains and they are essentially just just small scripts that are able to uh, whose chief sort of functionalities that they're able to based on some conditions to move around the, the units of value typically called tokens on blockchains uh, between different uh, accounts on the on the on the blockchain there's nothing in the language that that that's provided to write these things that are uh, contractual in any way and they will be completely obscure to a, a any pro- type of layperson trying to understand what they're supposed to be doing 
Um, and and by the way, they they run on a very very limited uh, virtual computer uh, that sits on all the participants of the blockchain's uh, computer, and 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 uh, and so they are probably the worst possible medium <laughs> to express any kind of contract in, so to speak. And I know for a fact that the inventor of the term deeply deeply regrets uh, ever calling it smart contracts. Yeah, I bet. I bet. He, I think he he thinks it should have been called some kind of blockchain sh- scripting or something. Yeah. Um, which it would have been much more correct. Exactly. I think it's caused a lot of confusion and um but what but it does mean though is that I think the excitement behind it I I actually think is is kind of actually excitement around what we're talking about here which is computational contracts um so for everyone listening if we can start shifting our attention that would be absolutely fantastic let's let's forget you know chatting through smart contracts etc let's start having the conversation around computational contracts because that's clearly that's the way that's the way things are going that's what's going to offer real value and there are scenarios where you could see a computational contract maybe using a blockchain for authentication of something mm. or, or proving that an event took place and somebody signed and potentially if the if if the blockchains ever mature enough that you can use them as reliable sort of settlement ve- mechanisms for economic value um then then there could be some kind of interaction but uh, but but it's that's it's not the primary sort of uh, thing so yeah. to speak yeah yeah so, I mean, can you give us some examples about, I mean, have you got, um, are there computational contracts being used now, you know, out there? Um, and, and if there are, are you able to give some examples? Well, there are, uh, there are, one of the primary examples, I guess, is uh, is the French insurance giant called AXA, who, who have been very public about the fact that they use computational contracts uh, as part of their insurance policies. Um, and they have credited the fact that they have a computational contract model of some of their policies with their ability to react very quickly in terms of uh, paying out uh, travel insurance uh, in relation to the COVID epidemic. Mm. Uh, Because they were very quickly able to figure out what restrictions were in place uh, in certain countries and feed that those facts into their contract computational contract model of their insurance policies and determine who uh, who were eligible for a payout and who were who were not um, so so uh, I don't know the details I of their setup I believe it's actually logic programming based uh, so it, 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 it it's sort of an extension of a lot of the academic research um, but uh, but I know they're very serious in this space around it, and they they keep developing it, and they they want to push for some kind of standardization within the uh, insurance industry for for these things. Mm, uh, mm. But other than that, there aren't that many practical examples out there, and it's because it 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 is hard to make it practical, and you have to be you have to be very pragmatic in your approach uh, in terms of how you do these things to make it feasible for people to uh, to use it. And that's, of course, one of the things that we hope to uh, mm. to, uh, to feel we have solved and who hope to to get out into uh, the real world. Mm. It's, it's the same old story, isn't it? which is uh, you've got to be really careful with, with how you apply the technology and, and point it in the right direction at the right contracts. You know, yes. I guess there will be some that probably don't lend themselves that well to, to computational uh, contracts, but there are some, like I guess that insurance example is a fantastic one. Whereby, yes. you know, with a very specific set of facts you're looking at, you know the contract's going to to say do this or do that or do something else, yeah. um, and you feed it in and you get that output. And I guess when you think about some of the without computational contracts, the process some companies or law firms will go through in in similar circumstances, they will, for example, take they would probably take the data customer data from the insurer. So they've got the they've got the facts. Then they would take the contracts from the insurer and analyze them and break them down. And yes. then there would be a team of paralegals trying to apply the customer facts to the customer provisions to figure out what what options should be taken. Whereas yeah. computational contracts just do that for you. Exactly. So, yeah. You can determine outright. I mean, and it, it it's because it, it I mean this this software system like this doesn't care whether or not there's a gazillion facts or ten facts, right? Uh, and and it doesn't care whether I, whether or not I need to analyze these facts in comparison with 
10 policies or 100,000 policies. It doesn't it doesn't really matter to it. Whereas it, of course, if you have to do it manually, it's a, it's a it's a it's a completely different uh, ball game. Mm. Um, mm. So um, so that's one of the upsides that you can you can process very very complicated fact scenarios against very complicated complex I should say uh, uh, rules uh, in a contract yeah. and determine what the what the result of that uh, mm. is mm. so i mean i guess i mean a question that i have and a question that i'm sure other people have is is kind of why haven't we seen more made of computational contracts why hasn't there been more and, and maybe you'll correct me maybe there has been a uh, significant uh, um, attention and focus on it but it seems like it's it's kind of an emerging area um what's the landscape like for computational contracts, I mean, are there are there many players operating in this space? Is it is it still very new? Um, it's it is still very new. There is uh, quite a a bit of uh, research. Uh, University of Singapore has some research going on. Uh, there's some research on Berkeley and Stanford and so on. And and there are some academics also in uh, in, in the UK who are who are looking into. Uh, to these things, uh, but um, it is very much on the research level. Um, um, it's hard to. S- it's just a very hard problem, and it's it's mm. it's it's it's, uh, it's not easy to design a language for for expressing these things that is both um, practical and generic enough that you don't very quickly run into stuff that you cannot express. Um, in, in, in the language yeah. uh, and just recognizing the fact that this is not something you can solve by having a piece of software where you can where you can do some uh, knob twiddling and setting some stuff and so on. You actually need a language to express the logic of a contract and, and building that language and making it practical is 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 just very hard. Mm. Um, I think the trick is actually to make it as easy as for yourself as possible, and I think that that's what that's one of the things that we try to do, right? By not being idealistic about these things, uh, but being pragmatic and saying, looking at where are, where is the pain, what is it that's hard about managing a contract in practice, and knowing that, I mean, knowing what is really hard for a contract manager or a finance person or a commercial person in terms of understanding. The contract. What is it that they want to know? When do they want to know it? What data do they have available? And building a language and a, you could say, execution engine that can that can handle that and also show it to you in a meaningful way. Mm. So, um, so I think that's that's part of the explanation. And it's it's not that that knowledge from the practical side of contract management and commercial work and finance work around contracts, marrying that with a legal understanding of contracts and knowledge about um, what you can do in software and computer programming language design and compiler theory and stuff like that. It's just not a very common combination, right? It's like having a heavyweight boxer that can also play the violin <laughs> while, while uh, you know, uh, windsurfing or something like that. It's, yeah. it's uh, so, so we are very fortunate in our team that we have all of that knowledge represented uh, at a, at a, I think at a f- qualified level. Mm. So, the, I mean, the language that's being used then, so this language we talk about, is it is it is there a c- convention? Is there a standard language that's been kind of almost come out of some of these academic studies um, and R and D that, that that could be leveraged by multiple different companies and vendors? Or are you have you done something specific that's enabled you to kind of move ahead we have our own language and it's inspired by academic research but it's also very much its own uh, so it's tried to 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 leave some of the the uh, academic ideals behind and making it uh, practical but there is work being done uh, also as i mentioned in, in singapore uh, on 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 some standard languages we happen to think that they are um they're a bit too low level. They yeah. are they are too close to the metal. They are they're too they're too they're too close to what you would see in in the smart contract languages that are also used. Uh, they they and and that, that 
makes them less practical. I'm not saying that they cannot succeed and they can't build abstractions on top of what they've already done that could make it feasible, but but we we take a different approach. Mm. Mm. Uh, and we accept that there are some limitations to what we are doing because, you know, uh, if it if somebody can sort of if we can if we can make a case for it, a financial case that it's that's value to be had by doing something different, we'll do it. But we won't be guided by uh, sort of uh, academic idealism. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we we've touched on some of the benefits of computational contracts. I just want to dig a little bit, a, a little bit deeper. And, and one, mm. of, one of the areas I find really fascinating with this is that whole concept of um, applying essentially uh, like event flows and facts to a contract to kind of, to model it out, to see what the outcome would be. And you know, yep. whether that's a contract that's in, in force or actually whether that's a contract in negotiation. And I think when we spoke, that's what's really interesting about computational contracts. But I mean, do you want to talk a little bit more around that and, and some of the other benefits of, of computational contracts as well? Sure. So one thing you could do if, let's say, it's it's it, I think it makes it easier if we, if we use an example. Um, so let's say we have some sort of um, ag- agreement that has a set of service levels built into it. So, you know, uh, standards for how well do you have to perform as a vendor with what you're doing in order to not pay liquidated damages or maybe even better to if if you perform outside those or above those you get a bonus as a vendor it could be many many different things but um, the a classical example would be like an IT operations agreement so you hire some IT vendor to 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 run a, a system for you and one of the service levels could be the response time of the the system or it could be its uptime so is it even available or not right and and you set a target of some percentage that it needs to be available and you set targets for different response times for different things that the system can do so if i asked it to retrieve like a a hundred customers from the system it should respond within so and so many milliseconds so that those are terms of a contract and and um, and they're very important because they, they they usually there are as I said, penalties or liquidated damages or, or, or bonuses tied into the compliance with these things. And and, and they're quite complicated often because I, this was just a very simple version that I outlined here because there's, of course, also a bunch of exceptions. So if the outage, if the, the system is down due to something the customer did, or if the system is down due to a service window that was notified to the client uh, in a timely manner. It shouldn't count against the downtime and all kinds of different rules mm. and exceptions and different standards for different systems. And sometimes you only promise these things within certain running hours and, you know, lots of lots of rules on top of each other that needs to be correlated with a, non- a bunch of facts, namely, was the system up or was it down? What was the response time at a certain point in time for which kinds of transactions? So if you have a language that's able to express those rules and and, and, and you also have an execution engine that's able to take that contract and, 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 and so, so to speak, if you feed a lot of operational facts like uptime measurements or response time measurements into the system, um, and and notices of service windows and, uh, and, and 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 the facts around whether or not a, an outage was attributable to a, a to the customer and so on, then you can actually determine what is the correct contractual state resulting from that. Is mm. somebody having to pay liquidated damages or not? Are they have they maybe breached the service level severe enough that they that the client may even terminate or have other rights uh, in accordance with those rules. Uh, and of course if you do that if you do that modeling before you enter into the contract, you can start feeding you know fact scenarios into those rules and see, okay, I have an assumption that if I can just keep operating as well as I did last year, um with my systems, I won't be paying any liquidated damages, right? So you could take a past mm. performance uh, that you feel comfortable with, and you could try to feed it into our computational contract here, and it it will tell you whether you're right or not, right? And you might be surprised 
uh, yeah. because it might be the fact that you you think you're okay, but you're actually very bad at at notifying these service uh, windows correctly. So they actually don't take effect uh, the way they that you you uh, you you wanted to. You might have been saved last year by just being lucky that some of the big outages that you did did fall within some service windows or whatnot. But you you wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah. And what the computer can do is they can, you, I can generate like a thousand scenarios and see how it happens. I could do Monte Carlo simulation, so I could do thousands and thousands of scenarios where the variables are set in different configurations, and I can tell you the result of of that on average, for instance. Yeah. Um, so you get a much more in-depth understanding uh, of your contract. You could also turn it on its head and say, well, we think we we have a plan to improve our performance quite dramatically we've tested it we feel we can do it we don't have historical facts to back it up but we we feel confident so i'm gonna go for a service level agreement that gives me a huge bonus if i can if i can perform 0.5 percent better than last year because i feel very confident we can do it uh let's let's see what that would result in um all kinds of questions mm-hmm. like that you can you can you can ask yourself and simulate and you can test that there aren't some weird edge cases where you get to pay a lot more in liquidated damages than you were assuming yeah. and these are completely normal things for for programmers right that's how they battle <laughs> exactly, their software yeah, yeah. Uh, and they couldn't they wouldn't i mean they would they wouldn't be sleeping at night unless they could do these types of things right yeah uh, but but lawyers are happy to write these things in prose and then then feel confident that we won't ever get hit by an edge case or there isn't something I've written here that uh, that um, that yeah. that will result in some problem. Yeah, no. And I can just tell you without naming names that the, <laughs> from all the modeling that we've done on different standard contracts that are out there, drafted by very, very high-end law firms, I have yet to encounter a single one that we haven't found a very egregious problem in. Yeah, I'm not, not so- a single, not a single one, and it's like it's not like sort of theoretical thing. It's like stuff that will is 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 guaranteed to cost you money. Yeah, but I'm not I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I I'd hate anyone to look at some of the contracts that I worked on previously. I you know I but know it's just the fact it's yeah. we're constructing these things that are so insanely complicated, and we have no meaningful solid way of. Of, of of testing them before they go into the wild right it's 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 uh, exactly it's quite bizarre when you think about it right we have this uh, this apprentice system where the young people they write these things and then they're vetted by some senior people that are so tired of reading these types of contracts that they actually are not reviewing them very effectively so that knowledge that they might even have about that could detect the problems it, it it's hard to make it into to, to make it to bring it into play in practice right yeah because, exactly yeah. yeah i mean you know it's it's very similar you know i, I work in product um and, you know and i can go through and we'll map out requirements and and we think we've been as detailed and as thoughtful and covered all the eventualities as possible yes. you can run that past the dev team and and inevitably they're going to find things that you haven't thought about then you'll correct it then you even build it and you'll still find things that just don't quite work so i think what i what i really like about computational contracts is yes you can run a set of facts through an executed contract and you know if if you say well what's the situation but what i really like about it is the use and the application of test case scenarios during negotiation you know so i mean when I, I worked in M&A and private equity. I mean, they're not the most co- complex contracts ever, but they are. They can get pretty complex. Mm-hmm. You get to the end, you get to completion, and there's a lot in there, and and you think it covers all eventualities. You think you've you've kind of covered off all bases, and if circumstances arise, that there'll be provisions in there that protect the client. You don't know for sure, and and I no. think what's really interesting is to say, you know, get to almost a point where the contract is almost fairly, you know, fairly final or, or in different phases and just say, okay, let's come up with three, four scenarios of what might occur, what might arise with in terms mm. of missed payments, missed obligations, whatever it might be. Um, you know, circumstances outside our control, if they arose, what would actually happen? Would this, would this contract hold water? Would it stand yes. up or would it fall down? And then, and I think when we spoke last time, it's not just in a single party's interest to do that. Actually, you could run these scenarios through and actually share the information with with the other side and just go, 
yeah, you know what? Actually, I think we both got this wrong. I don't think this yes. work, works for either of us. No, and it could it could very well be that you find stuff that, depending on the circumstances, could be bad for both sides. Or I mean, it is it is not necessarily the case that that uh, that something is not problematic for both sides, depending on what, what scenario we're talking about. It's it's uh, and the the, the the interesting thing is also that you you don't necessarily need to be limited by your own imagination in terms of generating these test cases because in in, in programming we have something we call generative pro, uh, testing and and it's basically based on the specification of the program the 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 the, the, uh, the, the computational contract in this mm-hmm. case you can ask the computer to come up with all kinds of insane values for the different things that could happen in the contract and see if it's robust against those things right so if the contract for instance fails to 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 state a um a a a certain limitation on when you can do something the the, the, the system is happy to to say oh by the way and then in 2331 the other side does this Right, or he does it maybe a hundred years ago or whatever, and it it will reveal these weaknesses in the system where something is unbounded, uh, that results in logical problems in the uh, uh, mm. in the, in the contract. Mm. Uh, so you can rely on on the on the con- on the computer being imaginative, on your behalf in terms of feeding extreme values into. Uh, to your scenario mm. but isn't isn't i mean i guess though on the flip side you know contract negotiation is is around allocation of risk and there is a there's all always um a balance to be struck you know clients at some point have to accept some level of of risk um and if you have computational contracts and you're you're able to stress test things and put scenarios through i guess there could be a risk that people become too reliant on that or become too kind of anxious that you haven't covered off everything, so I guess there is a, there's still an element of assumption of risk. You've got to kind of say, how comfortable are you with yes. with, with things? You know, do you want to cover off everything, or yeah. or are it, you? It never goes away, and it doesn't solve the problem whether or not to include a management of some some risk in the in the system. That that question is the same, but it 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 is able to. Uh, test for you the stuff that you think that you've managed whether or not that actually works right does yeah. it work as intended does it does it result in the liquidated damages that we thought or not given that we that we run these uh, simulations but it, it cannot of course tell you whether or not you should also guard against this that and the other that's this that's still part of the drafting and uh, and a part of the craft of of, uh, of mm. drafting, and and so I mean, like we've said, that the, these computational contracts they they kind of they they rely on the facts, the events, you know, the information to to interpret. So, um, I mean, how important to, to computational contracts are um, it, kind of integrations and and APIs and you know the ability to pull data from other systems. So that you can kind of give that live view of the contractual state at any point in time. I mean, will we see more and more uh, integrations develop with with kind of common uh, enterprise business systems, so that all that data can be pulled, so that the uh, the computational contracts can interpret it? Yeah, I'm certain that we will. And and there's a lot of line of business systems that contain contractually relevant events like ERP systems where you can source orders and invoices and payments and stuff like that. There are, you know, uh, uh, incident management systems, for instance, in IT that will tell you did something uh, uh, occur, when was it reported, when was it resolved and so on. There are logistics systems that will provide you with sort of logistical events like delivery and uh, and uh, sign off and, and and stuff like that. So there's there's going to be in most business bus- businesses a, a a number of key systems that you want to tap into um, and and source events um, from. Uh, you'll probably also augment that with a few things that you do manually that you insert into the system. Uh, and, and there's also sort of the possibility of collecting more ad hoc uh, event data in Excel sheets and uploading those. So you'll, you'll see the whole sort of range of, of things uh, uh, being in play. That's mm. for sure. Mm. And I guess there's, you know, the, the fact that the, the contracts are being worked on and developed in a system 
and you have a visibility and an audit trail over how things change throughout the negotiation and it's all being captured within the system is, is also a huge benefit. And one of the one of the drawbacks of doing things in the old fashioned way is that whilst you might have different versions of a document, you, you have no chain of continuity. You don't understand how necessarily how a clause or provision has, has evolved over time during the negotiation. But I guess that is a benefit of computational contracts, that you have a full audit history of of how a contract has, has been negotiated, has has amended, has been changed over time. Yeah, it has. And, and it has this interesting effect that, that, that you can actually run two different versions of the contract against the same facts and see not only how did it change, but what does that mean to the facts, right? What does it mean to the result? So how does this one interprets it like you're not paying liquidated damages and the next one, all of a sudden, where the same facts result in huge liquidated damages, right? Mm. Uh, which is, is also going to be pr- providing you with, with, with quite a lot of understanding actively provided to you by the system as opposed to something you have to figure out for yourself Mm. Um, i think that's key in what we are trying to do is that we are trying to make the system help you so in our system we have a a concept of a contract advisor that basically looks through the contract on a continuous basis and looks for for instance obligations that needs to be fulfilled it could be fulfilled now and it alerts you to those it, it tells you how can i fulfill them what do i need to do in some cases if it's if it's something that could be fulfilled virtually like submitting a report or something it will let you submit the report and sort of fulfill your obligation it does the same thing with discretions like so if you have a discretion all of a sudden as a customer to ask for certain extra services or whatever it will show that to you in context explain to you why it is that that discretion has arisen now and it will show you how you can exercise that discretion what you need to advise or notice the 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 supplier of in order to exercise the discretion Mm. and it can also show you the consequences of doing so Mm. um so so we, 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 we try to leverage all this to make the contract actively um, uh, sh- show your options to you and explain itself to you, basically. Yeah, I mean, that, that concept you just flagged a, a moment ago around running two independent versions of contract through on the same set of facts, I think it could potentially turn... Um, you know, working with lawyers, working with their clients into a really interesting process, you know, sitting in those meetings where you run through a contract and say, well, yeah, what, do we, what do we want to do on this provision or that provision? You know, mm-hmm. it's almost you're, you'll be gaming it out as you go along to say, yes, OK, well, let's let's look at what would happen if we if we give on that point or let's look, let's look what will happen if we can if we win this point. Um, yeah. This is what it's going to do, and and this would be the flip side of what we would have to give away and what we might you know um, lose. And so, being able to run those gaming scenarios through during negotiation uh, on alternative versions of the contract is <laughs> is is awesome. When I think yeah. about it, no, it's brilliant. I mean, but just to kind of dig a little deeper on, I mean, we talked about some of the benefits of computational contracts in in terms of things like negotiation and modeling and making sure you reach the right outcomes, uh, or at least that you're aware of the consequences of what you're entering into and creating. Mm-hmm. But I guess computational contracts, the fact that they are built using code, that there are some peripheral benefits, I guess, from from going down that route when you think about the benefits and and, and the processes developers go through when they write code around debugging their code, running QA, on on the code etc to make sure that it it holds up it's it's proper and fit for production grade i guess some of those benefits flow across the contracts then um they they do and you can use the whole suite of uh i mean if there's any type of profession that's really good at inventing tools to uh, help themselves it's programmers because what they need to invent is typically another program Right, mm. and they they eminently fit to do so. I mean, as a as a carpenter, I might have an idea for a new piece of tooling that could make my life easier, but unless I can build it out of wood, I'm kind of stuck. Right? It's yeah. not entirely true because some carpenters are also capable of building their own tools. But it 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 is a it's it's a particular feature of of programmers that they are they work in an environment where they can mold the entire tooling also. Be, because they they're using within they're, they're using the same medium they're building to build what they're building 
basically. Mm. And and that means that they've come up with some amazing tools around version control that is much, much more uh, reliable and strong than what you see in Word and track changes. <laughs> yeah. They they have syntax checkers so they can upfront before they even try to compile or build their software, figure out if they, they write this correctly. Is is this is this permissible in, in this this language? They have syntax highlighting where the the, the the text that they write, the parts of the program that they build, um, is is able is colored in different ways, giving you clues about what the different parts do. So imagine uh, like if Word was able to automatically detect whether you were writing an obligation or discretion or policy or whatever, and it would it would indicate that to you automatically just based on what you were typing, for instance. Um, there's debuggers, right, that let you step through the code step by step and tell you what are the effects of different things that you're doing uh, when the program isn't behaving as you were expected. And and yeah, so there's there's no end to the to the tooling really, and you you can tap directly into that because you are effect building programs, but in a in a different language. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you mentioned version control there. That's something that lawyers get very um, anxious about, you know, being yes. able to keep on top of the versions of their document. I mean, is there any any different implications of, of versioning when, when dealing with computational contracts versus you know, the, the common way of doing things? And I mean, you just mentioned it there about programmers. They use things like Git um, to, yes. to, to manage versioning. So, I mean, what, what's that going to look like from computational contracts? Well, it's going to be make it very reliable because the, what what tuition control systems do is that they don't rely on the fact that you are showing all the changes from the last version. They will every time that you submit something, that the other side submits something they claim is a version of what they previously received, they will just compare that outright to what was existing and show you all the differences. There's nothing, there's this whole notion of switching on track changes and switching it off and what choosing what to highlight. It's not, it's not part of the equation anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so they will, and they, they do these things with, with, uh, uh, and they check these things with checksums that are, that are cryptographically safe. So there's no, there's no gamesmanship possible mm. really in this mm. space and then some of the more advanced sort of uh, change tracking systems can also do structural compares so they are not really concerned with the um, if something has moved to some other part of the, um, the, 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 the the code or the contract they will they will track that logic down and compare it to the previous logic uh, and show you where the differences are. Mm. So it's a much, much more robust uh, system for version control than you're used to. Yeah. And there's no no reason to be paranoid about uh, track changes and whether or not somebody, mm-hmm. somebody accidentally, in quotation marks, switched it off. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, listening to the conversation we've just had, um, I think I, I, I would be very surprised if anyone was in doubt as to whether <laughs> competition contracts are a valuable uh, development in in the kind of the, the world of uh, agreements and, and contracts in, in law, it, the, the benefits are obvious. The benefits are clear. It's something mm. that you know has been much needed for for many many years. But I mean, what? So looking ahead, what what are the challenges? Do you think? I mean, how how do we get to a world where we we've got computational contracts being used more broadly? Obviously, for the right use cases that we've got law firms, corporates, etc., leveraging computational contracts. What hurdles stand in the way, and, and and what can everyone do to try and to try and get us there? Well, in a world where 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 drafting is all still very arcane, and where there's not a lot of standardization already, and so on, I think one of the biggest hurdles is actually that it, this is like. This is very novel, right? It's mm. it's it. There's a feeling amongst some of the people that we've been talking to, and I'm just being very sort of transparent with you here, is that that this seems almost a bit too futuristic. I mean, we still haven't gotten that document assembly system up and running, and now mm. you're telling us that we need to, the contracts needs to be code. I mean, what is is it's like it's it's just too much, right? Mm. We still can't find our PDFs and 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 so on. It's 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 like ten steps ahead. Um, so that 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 feeling of this thing being alien is 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 a is a, is a challenge. 
and the language is getting them out there and getting them the technology getting it out there and getting it battled hardened and finding scenarios where the trade-offs makes takes makes sense yeah. right where you where we can warrant the investment in a computational contract because maybe you're instantiating hundreds of the same types of complicated contract or where there's maybe a smaller number but where the where the pain of having the traditional contracts and the lack of understanding and transparency is so great that it that it makes sense tracking those things down that those are those are those are challenges too yeah but you know in general change aversion is also a factor here but i'm i get sort of you know when i speak to people so about this and they say well, well we still have this document assembly project that we haven't finished so maybe we should get that done and maybe get our contract traditional contract lifecycle management system up to scratch and say yeah. i want to get through those first and then i can get to this thing yeah. and i when i'm when i'm when i'm when i get annoyed i tend to to <laughs> answer people that 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 well you know um, at some point, the Chinese, they were facing the dilemma of whether or not they needed to go through traditional landlines like 2D, 3D, and 4D mobile phones before going to 5G. And for some reason, they chose not to do all those middle steps and just went directly to 5G because it is actually feasible. It just, it takes a little bit of vision and, 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 um, and you exactly. know, being prepared to change ahead because it's not as if the technology is not here. It is here and it is possible to do it. It won't be perfect. It, you will have some challenges and so on, but the benefits is just enormous and they are as different from regular contract lifecycle management systems and the features they can provide as, as, as 5G phone is from a landline. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, like I said to you at the start, I think, What's the point of doing old things new ways if you've got yes. the opportunity to do new things? And yes. so, and so, it's not a rule of thumb to say you have to go through those steps before you reach the the new world and you're using computational contracts. If the no. te- if the technology is there, you could do it now. Yeah, don't bite off more than you can chew, but don't feel like you have to go through, jump through one hoop just to get to computational contracts. You can go straight there. Exactly, and and what we are also sort of pushing is the idea of these hybrid thing, hybrid contracts, and and an incremental approach to these things. So let's just model the stuff that's that's the most problematic for you now, where the greatest risk, where the where the, the greatest value is, is is at risk, and we'll start handling that. And when we can prove that we can we can get your SLA management under control and 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 have the data available to do that, we'll take the next step mm. and, and capture some more value. There's no uh, there's no law saying that you have to do the whole thing at once and for all contracts. Yeah. Just p- we'll pick the ones where it, it makes sense and we'll demonstrate to you that it's possible. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. um. Yeah. Uh, it's a uh, it's. But it is it is it is a challenge for sure. But uh, we are also very confident that since we now have the ability to demonstrate how valuable this is uh, with real life contracts. Uh, mm. Then, then we'll also, um, in fairly short order, find somebody who's uh, uh, prepared to give it a give it a go. And you also have to remember, this is not like implementing an ERP system or something where you then, if it fails, for God forbid. <laughs> yeah. But if it was to fail, you're you're basically you you've ruined your company. Basically, right? Companies have been about to go under, but uh, because of failed ERP implementations, uh, they don't talk a lot lot about that. But it's it's a fact yeah. that, that it that somebody some companies come close to the brink because of these things. Your worst case scenario with something like this is that it's the same as it was yesterday. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've lost absolutely nothing. You've maybe lost an investment in a project, but your 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 future scenario is it's just going to be the same as today. Mm. Mm. Right? Well, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, my my advice then for anyone you know anyone listening, whether it's you know from a corporate or even from a law firm, is just you know if you think you've got that project um, or so, something that you're working on or something that you could collaborate with with your clients on that would lend itself to. Yes. To, to this type of thing, then I guess, you know, just, just get in touch with you because, yeah. you know, I think I'm seeing more and more now um, law firms and their clients have greater appetite for collaborating on projects like this, 
where it might, yes. as you say, it might just be a bit of a punt. It's no, there's no loss if it doesn't work out. But I think if you're one of these people that want to try something new with the clients, then and want to reach out with an idea of how things can be improved, then yeah, this seems like one of those areas that would would really lend itself to that. Yeah, and I think you could demonstrate some real foresight and vision by doing it as a law firm or at, I mean, it could also be like without a law firm, yeah. it could be an inter internal, like a TC saying, we really want to push the envelope there. We want to put the contract at the center of things in our business because it actually is the only reason that it isn't really act so is because it, it has this form where it sits in this PDF where we can't really access the logic of it and having it play the role in our business that it that it's supposed to. But if we have it in a, as a computational contract, it can it can feed off all the other data in the organization and it can transmit and explain itself to other systems. So it could verify uh, invoices and it can it can alert you on whether or not your operational behavior is about to cause contractual problems and 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 so on right mm, so mm. it's very hard for a law legal department to to operationalize um contracts effectively and and computational contracts is one of the few ways that you could actually uh, achieve that and and since contracts basically define the interface between you as an organization and the outside world it it's it's quite surprising that they are not more central to to um, to businesses than than they are in fact but i think part of the explanation is that it's not they they haven't been something that lent itself well to uh, digitization right um mm, yeah but they they can't be made to 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 be that and when you when you try to do that you you discover how many things that they actually interact with and they they should influence in your business mm. there's so many workflows and so many decisions that should be affected by your contract or where at least you needed to take the contractual consequences into consideration. But it's very hard if your contract is a PDF sitting in some obscure CLM system. Yeah, yeah. So, so Martin, I mean, just as we wrap up the, the episode, I mean, can you say a little bit about what, what you're kind of excited about for the next 12 months for, for hyper contracts? What, what have you got planned? What's, what's coming up in the, uh, in the near future? Well, we um, I, I would mention two things. I, I think we've we've been building up the language and the execution engine and making sure that it's able to 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 to, to model the things that we wanted to model. And now we are uh, we are moving on to uh, a phase where we will also make it extremely easy for you to instantiate these types of contracts. For instance, if you're a vendor, uh, it could be also be a, a, a customer, but Let's say you're a SaaS vendor and you're on some kind of framework agreement where you, with a lot of customers and and you want to instantiate new contracts, we, we want to make it, we want to be able to demonstrate how easy you can get going and instantiate these fairly complex contracts and see how they start behaving when facts are, are, are fed to them. So that's our sort of product roadmap um, in that sense. Uh, um, and I think within uh, the next 12 months, we we have like uh, three or four strong pilot projects running that are that are hopefully in diverse industries, so we can sort of really battle test uh, this thing. Um, so that's that's the that's the that's the thought. Awesome. Awesome, and and for anyone listening who is is fast, it's become fascinated with computational <laughs> contracts like I have, um, and wants to get in touch and find out more. What's the best best way of them doing that? Well, I mean, the easiest is hypercontracts.com. Uh, it has a very sort of simple splash page and a contact formula. So just uh, put in your email there, and uh, we'll be in touch uh, and uh, and let you know. Or they can reach out to me, M A C Mike Alpha Charlie at syngrato.com which right. i think is also in your show notes um, yeah i'll put the i'll put the details in there for anyone who yeah. wants to get in touch um brilliant martin i mean that that was a fantastic and and really interesting discussion i think this is an area it's right quite refreshing actually for something to come along for us to have a discussion about something that you know is just from my perspective very fresh um really interesting touching on 
and solving a lot of the problems that actually we've we've I've discussed with other guests in previous episodes. This is something that would address a lot of those those points um, previously. And it's just great to be talking about something new in legal tech and something that is clearly valuable, clearly exciting. And something I think clearly is going to have a huge impact over the coming months and, and years. And uh, I think what you're doing is is really visionary and, and really progressive. And so I, I'm really interested and keen to see how you guys get on over the over the next few yeah. years. We, we, of course, are too, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. It, of course, also makes it challenging to be at the bleeding edge, but but we like that challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's so much fun. And as you say, who who wants to write another, you know, <laughs> contract lifecycle management system yeah. system, right? It's uh, it's not that's not what we want. I mean, I can totally respect that somebody thinks that's interesting. More power to them. Uh, I'm I'm not part of uh, yeah. that that group. I, I'd rather work on something that. Yeah. yeah, is in this space. Yeah, no, you're a legal tech revolutionary. <laughs> so, uh, no, it's fantastic. So, Martin, thanks for coming on the show. Really enjoyed the discussion. And for everyone else uh, listening, the next episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast will be out very soon. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.